0: Yeah, welcome to the Worship Theology um, Podcast. I'm Dr. Jeremy Parago, and it's a joy to kind of um, bring guests on who are theologians, musicians, worship leaders, to think more deeply about the theology and practice of worship. My guest today is Dr. Melanie Ross. She is an Associate Professor of Liturgical Studies at Yale Divinity School. Um, a recent book that she's written is Evangelical Worship, an American Mosaic. And yeah, Melanie, it is a treat to, to have you today and a great great opportunity to meet you. Thanks for being on. Your work has really shaped and influenced my, my own life. And before but before we get into that, I'd I'd love to just, yeah, get to know you a little bit, particularly around Christian worship. You you study Christian worship, um, you've been involved in teaching, leaders of worship and theologians. Maybe just so we can get a get to know you a little more, share about a meaningful experience in worship, something either as a scholar or as a participant or as a leader, when you hear that question, what first yeah, what what first memory comes to mind?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, I, I would say it wasn't one moment, but when I was a, a senior in college and then for a couple of years after college, I was part of a worship team at church that I just loved. It was one of the most special experiences of my life. We had a, a leader that wrote songs specifically for the congregation. It was a, a small team that worked closely together with the pastor on his teaching sermons. Um, and we just became a family. They were they were really dear to me. So, so in my I past, that, yeah, I that, take,
0: that yeah, community it, dynamic can be really so special. Yeah, yeah. No, go ahead I mean, in your past.
1: No, I, I was going to say that these these the, the kids that I got to know in that group, I'm still in touch with, and they're often getting married now. And and there's something really about the family aspect of worship that I love.
0: Are are you a yeah musician then too? In addition to a kind of theologian scholar.
1: I am. Yeah, I was a music education major in my undergrad years.
0: What's what's yeah, one of your main instruments or what is it? Yeah, what what's kind of your I'm, first study? I'm
1: pretty rusty now, but I was a, a decent <laughs> pianist in my college years and I love to sing alto, so voice and piano.
0: Well, Melanie, what what made that shift maybe from music ed from piano player to Liturgical theology, and particularly studying and researching contemporary worship and the history of of Christian worship, give us a, a insight into that 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 shift from music educator to to theologian.
1: Yeah, um, I, I think music has been a constant in my in my thinking and my career path from from my earliest years, but I was in college in the late nineteen. 19- 90s, which was the time when the famous worship wars were kind of um, breaking out. Um, think think, Darlene checks Shout to the Lord era of, of music. Um, and I was part of a team that was looking for uh, someone that would come shape our chapel music program. And the conversations were really contentious, as, as I think they were at lots of places at that time. Do we want somebody that knows uh, the guitar side of things and the contemporary music side? Do we want somebody that's classically trained, that can um, that can write parts for an orchestra, that sort of thing? And And my first inkling there was just, boy, these debates are really strong, and it feels like it's about something more than, well, I like the way this song sounds, and I like the way that song sounds, and we're in disagreement. Like somehow who God is is at stake in what we're singing. Um, so that was enough to get me to um, off to divinity school, and I took a class in liturgical studies, which was a scary word to me at the time because liturgy was <laughs> not something that I did, <laughs>
0: It was a bad word, right? In some it traditions, that's it's yeah. Kind, yeah. And again, depending on what what church background you're from, yeah,
1: yeah. Or you know, it was for other kinds of Christians. It was for Episcopalians. Mm. It was for Lutherans. It was yeah. for Catholics. But yeah. it wasn't something that I, I grew up in a non denominational um, evangelical church. So we didn't do liturgy, um, and I, I took this course. And I really fell in love with the way that some theologians from these long, rich traditions were writing about what they did on Sunday morning. Um, And and part of me thought, boy, I I wish that somebody were writing deeply about what non-denominational evangelicals do. Um, And this was also, again— I'm a product of my times, but a lot of what was written about evangelicalism back then came um, during the era when megachurches were really taking off. And so it was pretty critical of, you know, here's, here's what these megachurches are doing. It's not sacramental. It's not what we mainline Protestant churches are doing. Be careful about their liturgy. And I, I wanted a less defensive way of talking about it. So that's how I got into this.
0: Well and I think that for me what I think the, the first thing I really read of yours was evangelical versus liturgical, defying a dichotomy. And I had done I think all the way through my doctorate at the Weber Institute. And so it, it had but had served in both congregations in the US and UK, other parts of the world, even at that time. And I, I read that book and I'm like, finally someone <laughs> is, is really trying to to not only critique an evangelical or a free church theology and practice of worship, but also kind of construct it in its own right and its own situation. And again, exceptional scholars like Marva Don, Robert Weber, James White, and their own rights, uh, and even Simon Chan, who I've had on the this podcast, like come really critical of evangelical worship and, desi- and desire for reform. And again, I've drawn from those wells. I've yeah really appreciate what what they do, but often. It, it ended in just a critique and really a critique of something that maybe, particularly in the late 2000s, didn't really exist anymore. In my view, like they were critiquing songs from the seventies and eighties or particular seeker movements that even within those churches had made vast shifts. And so I guess, yeah, first, thanks for, for that. It allowed me and, and now some, some of my students to kind of gain another idea, but I, I'm, I'm curious, like, yeah, what, What, like... Would you say are some of the key contributions of evangelical worship? Again, if we'd listen to other podcasts, we'd we'd see lots of critiques of of that movement and their worship and theology, and even some of these books we were talking about. But what are they maybe offering in terms of their theology of worship, and what are evangelicals offering in their practice of worship that the rest of us should be be listening to and and looking towards?
1: Oh, what a what a kind generous question! I appreciate that, Jeremy. Um, you know, in, in the book that you talked about, evangelical versus liturgical, I, I made an analogy um, to the fact that we have four Gospels, and and three of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, are, are pretty similar in a, a lot of their content. It's where you'll read the same stories. John has um, a perspective that the three synoptic Gospels don't have. And I thought that's that's a really helpful way into thinking about the difference between evangelical worship and some of the other more liturgical traditions. Um, and, and one of the things that the Gospel of John really emphasizes is you need a personal relationship with Jesus. Um, that's, that's the book where we get Jesus calling the sheep by name and talking about the branches that are grafted into the vine. And it's this really intimate connection. Um, And I think the other three gospels uh, have some of that, but they also are really emphasizing structure and authority and, and how a church is run. Um, And I think the gift of evangelicalism is to say, you need a relationship with Christ Mm -hmm. and and that, that personalism it's a strength and a weakness, but it really comes through in the ways that, that we worship. And I, I think that's a gift that we offer.
0: Practically maybe what, what, How is that expressed in, again, global evangelical worship? How is that kind of theology of the personal relationship with Jesus expressed in our songs or prayers or preaching?
1: Yeah. Um, I mean, I I think music is the first kind of go-to, and so much of our songs are directly in conversation with God. Um, and even the, the songwriters that I've spoken to have said, you know, this is a song that came out of my devotional time with Christ. Um, this, is, this is a word that the Lord gave me and landed on my heart. Um, and I, I want other people who might resonate to be able to sing that. So there's that. Um, I think one thing that, that sometimes gets missed in the study of evangelical worship is how important the things are that happen outside of Sunday morning and how there's kind of a, a loop between what happens in your small group and then what you're bringing to the service on Sunday. Um, so I, I think a lot of that personal relationship with Christ, with each other, comes when we have small group prayer times and Bible studies together and, and we are working together in children's ministry, and we bring all the richness of those experiences into the sanctuary, and it, it comes out in the ways that we sing and pray.
0: Yeah, I can remember in. First couple of years in the UK, we're at kind of a worship theology conference and a fairly well-known in the UK kind of British worship theologian was really critiquing evangelical movement on not having you know, the prayers of the people or a pastoral prayer. And she kind of made a broad statement of, you know, evangelicals don't pray in worship. And afterwards, we had a great, great conversation. Like I said, have you ever gone to a 6 a.m. prayer meeting in an evangelical service on a Wednesday, you know, on a Wednesday morning? And I'm like, that's an hour and a half of, of praying for the needs, local, global, um, also of of praise and doxology in that. But, but I think, yeah, sometimes when, when some of those scholars from other traditions, and I'm probably guilty of this sometimes as I look at different, different churches in the world, but we can put, put our own expectations of worship on these other movements and say, oh, well, since there's not a pastoral prayer after the sermon or during, during the, the, the kind of communion liturgy, they must not pray when actually, if we, we have that larger view of the, the, the ecclesial practices of the church that happen, yes, on a Sunday morning, but also throughout the week, um, we may see that they are a, a people of prayer. And, and I would say in, in many cases, that's that's true for, for evangelicals. What, yeah, yeah, what do you think? Oh, go ahead. Yeah.
1: No, I was just thinking as we were talking to um, like another real gift of evangelicalism is it's it's baked right into the name in some ways, evangelism. Um, and I think there's a really strong ethos in evangelical churches to to welcome the person that might be either new to this specific setting or new to Christianity in general and to, to crack open the service as wide as you can to invite other folks in and um, yeah, there's there's just a, a real concern to not use lingo and and insider words and that sort of thing so that other other yeah. people can see what's going on.
0: And the, yeah, that gift of hospitality, I think you you see that now in, in some more yeah traditional liturgical churches of how can we be more welcoming, how can we be more hospitable? But yeah, baked into the evangelical right. kind of pie is this idea of let's contextualize. And it's yeah, it comes from that desire to see people experience jesus and hear hear the good news which is yeah so 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 beautiful what what do you think um yeah with within these these practices like we 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 often let me ask it another way like what areas of evangelical liturgical theology are often overlooked
1: You know, I, I think that so much focus has gone into it. Well, let me start that again, too. It kind of depends on the scholar that you're talking to. So
0: (laughs) yeah, of course,
1: (laughs) if uh, for a lot of folks from sacramental mainline traditions, uh, the the interesting thing has just been evangelical music. Um, And and the emphasis on, well, well, what are they singing? And on one hand, I think there's a whole lot more that we can and should say about that and study. Um, but on the other hand, it means looking at music has meant that liturgical scholars haven't been looking at other things. Um, I think homiletics and the practice of preaching and what kinds of sermons are evangelicals giving, I think that's a huge area that still needs to be thought about Um as you mentioned, patterns of prayer. Um, how and when during the service are we praying? How has that shifted over the years? Um, even even evangelical... Um, Sacraments, some traditions might say, or uh, or Lord's Supper. Evangelicals don't celebrate it maybe as frequently as, as some of our other brothers and sisters who do it every week. I'm in a church that celebrates once a month, but it's still a really meaningful time in worship. Um, and I, I'd love to see some more focus on that too, beyond just, I think you should be practicing it more often, but what does it mean when you do practice it?
0: Mm-hmm. I love, yeah, I, I really appreciate that. And I think it's as you serve or visit other congregations or study like again we we are often coming bringing our own tradition our own experience we can't not you know set that aside in some way but also to 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 be able to sit at a more evangelical expression of the lord's supper and say wow here's where some of their theology is coming forth i feel often in evangelical congregations there's almost another sermon <laughs> like and it shows that that desire for the preaching of god's word of the desire for teaching the ex- desire to explain what's happening instead of just experience like maybe in an anglican context or, or or something that is more sacramental and so yeah i really appreciate your your encouragement for us to be more aware of these different traditions rather than just trying to take one liturgy and, and kind of place it on the other. Um, at the same time, what what within evangelical kind of worship context maybe concerns you? Or as you've been a part of that movement, where would you desire to see some some reform or some, some shifts?
1: Yeah. You know, I, I would say that, uh, again, it's a strength and a weakness, but one part of being evangelical is that you're interested in the pragmatic. Um, how, can we, how can we do this efficiently? Um, what's, what's the method that's going to reach the most people in the most effective way? And I think sometimes those pragmatic decisions trump the, the theological thinking behind them. Like, we're, we're doing this because it's, it's convenient and the fastest means to an end, but have we thought through theologically the, the hows and the whys of what are we doing?
0: Um, so, I, I think you know. that's so practical. Like, I can I can picture a pastor coming back from a conference, seeing this cool new you know video screen or this new new song, and rather than any sense of like discernment, it's like, let's do this on Sunday. Let's install these these this new sound system or let's move to inner ear monitor, like without any kind of discussion or or, or discernment.
1: Or another example that I could think of is um, like a congregation that I know that has shifted the way that they they take communion on Sunday. And so um, instead of passing the elements down the rows, they have stations at the front and you, you come up and you get it as you feel ready and you return to your seat and you kind of um, absorb the elements in your own time, which is great. Uh, it, it takes less time. Um, it doesn't single anybody out you don't have to sit there awkwardly while the plate passes you by if you're not receiving that morning um, yeah. but it also it, it sends different theological messages when when communion kind of becomes a self-serve drive through I'm using pejorative terms but uh, yeah. yeah but let's let's think about not just the the pragmatic rationale for why we're doing this but w- what do we mean theologically what does this say about our community? Yeah.
0: Not just how to cut five minutes off the yeah, service, exactly. but which is important too, and it it brings in those themes of hospitality and mission and and reach. But at the same time, knowing that those decisions do matter, that there is consequences in our our, our formation. Your your more recent book um, is evangelical worship, and it's really dealing with kind of the, the connection of identity and worship and these kind of practices, rituals. Um, one, of the, one of your core questions is, why is worship so central to Christian identity for evangelicals? And again, I hope everyone reads your book and engages with it. It's, it's fantastic. It's, mine's all marked up. But for those that maybe don't, what, what answer did you find to that question of why it's so central to why is worship so central to Christian identity?
1: Yeah. Um, so so for this book, I, I had this amazing chance to go do what I think a lot of pastors would like to do, like just go hang out in other churches. I, I went to seven different churches, got to stay for two weeks at a time and get to know people and talk about their practices. Um And so you're right. I I came to the conclusion that worship is, um, you know, not just something that we tack on. It's not just three fluffy songs at the beginning. It it says something about who we are theologically. And I think there are kind of at least two reasons for that. One of them being that, um, I mean, music specifically has always been a form of prayer, um, you know, we, the person that sings praise twice. I believe that that's true and and the kinds of words that worship leaders are putting into the mouths of of their participants are really important. like there's there's a way of connecting to God when we sing that's unlike anything else. Um, but the other kind of more recent reason that I think worship is central to identity is just I, I look at how much evangelicalism um, has, has evolved, splintered, shifted, kind of, kind of pick your adjective. But um, in, in the back of my mind was the thought that sometimes scholars from outside of the tradition, tradition talk about evangelical as if it was one thing. Oh. And there are so many ways of being evangelical, um, whether you're more a, a Pentecostal kind of evangelical, if you're in a vineyard tradition, if you're in a megachurch tradition, if you're in a denomination, um, all of these things matter. And in some ways, um, the ways that we preach and the the things that we sing mark out where our church sits on a theological map. Um, so I, I go to a church now that one of the things that they're very proud of is we're a church that preaches exegetically. We go book by book through the Bible. That's that's one kind of evangelicalism. Another kind of evangelicalism might say, here's, here's the big topic, and we're going to look at all kinds of verses of Scripture that fit into that topic. Um, same thing with worship music. Um, you might be a congregation that says it's really important to us that we sing the the relevant contemporary thing that's on the charts right now. You might be a church that really values historic hymnody. You might be a congregation that um, that prioritizes intergenerational worship that um, that tries to do something else. Um, so all of those things, I think, a visitor could could walk into your church and say this has a specific flavor based on the worship that's different from another church that I attended. Does that get at what you're asking? Yeah, with
0: th- yeah, ab- absolutely. And I think like you use the term mosaic as you describe evangelical worship, which I think as you, you know, you're publishing this in what 2020 2021 kind of yeah. this time where Everything else I was reading on evangelicalism in America um, was really focused on white e- white evangelicals and the politics of white evangelicals, which is important work to think about. I'm not, sure. again not not discounting that work, but I felt as I was reading some of that, we had some of those guest speakers at Dort to, to, to yep. wrestle with with some of these ideas. I just moved back from the UK, like to the, to America, and all this, and I I opened your your book, and I'm like. Yeah, that's how I see evangelicals in my experience, living in the Middle East or working in Europe and serving. Is there isn't this monolith of it's this political movement or it's this particular um, cultural group or ethnic group? Like, what what led you to characterize the worship of evangelicals as a mosaic?
1: Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I well, going back to your point, I really resonate with that. Um, Part of me just really wants to claim the label evangelical as a theological concept and, and not let it be hijacked as a political label. Um, so I would much rather, if somebody says, are you an evangelical? I, I don't want them to be asking how I vote. I want them to be saying, what's your, what's your church experience like? So I, I think we've got some work to do in, in redefining that word. Um, but I, I picked the idea of mosaic partly because because I had these seven churches and I had a responsibility as an author to make some order out of them. Um, and so I, when I think about, uh, uh, and there, there are lots of different metaphors I could have used to describe evangelical, it's a family resemblance, it's a kaleidoscope, it's always shifting. But when I thought about what's my role as an author, um, it, it was, I'm going to put this church very directly in conversation with this church, and then I'm going to put this piece in because these, these two colors kind of blend together, or there's the right amount of contrast mm-hmm. here. Um, so, so to give one easy example of that, I, one of the things that I love in the table of contents is one chapter is called, Not to Sing is to Disobey. Um, and, and that church was emphasizing that singing is the most often given positive commandment in Scripture, and so it's key to our congregational identity that we sing. The very next chapter is called "You Can't Make Me Sing,"
0: um,
1: <laughs> and this was this was a church in the Pacific Northwest that that had a lot of folks that had been hurt by megachurches, and and when the worship leader would say, "Please stand and sing," it was just a, a negative trigger to them. And he said he could just feel them looking back from the congregation saying, "You can't make me do that." Um, <laughs> so. <laughs> So there is, you know, there's different theological contrasts. Um, uh, There was also a chronological order that I put them in. I I started the book with Park Street Church, which is one of the oldest evangelical churches in the United States. Um, I think sometimes when you say evangelical church, if you're of a particular generation, the first place that your mind goes is to Willow Creek or to some of the churches in the 1990s. Um, but th- but there are churches in this book that came into being in the 1800s. And, and kind of let's start from there and work to more recent issues. So that was a little of the rationale.
0: Yeah, and I was just recently at a, a conference in the Middle East with the World Evangelical Alliance and had the honor to lead worship. Oh, wow. And as I, I I looked out at, you know, it was about 200 leaders who lead the evangelical alliance in nigeria the evangelical alliance in palestine and 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 like this group of people really who define themselves as biblical as those who bear the good news but politically culturally even ecclesiologically their beliefs on what the church is is, should be and should look like was so diverse that, yeah, again, your book, even though you were looking at America, not global, you know, worship really, really connected so well. I'm like, yeah, the, I think Melanie's onto something here. This is a mosaic that, yeah, there are some common threads. Um, some of those that we talked about, about Gospel proclamation and contextualization, and just loving Jesus as a, in a as our personal Lord and Savior. Some of those are are really key, and that's what's what's expressed in in our worship. How do you think? Um, Some of the, some of both the theologies and the practices of worship from these evangelical churches have maybe, um, yeah, been adopted or adapted by more, more high church or more liturgical streams. How, how have you seen that either as a worship leader or, you know, musicians or as, as a scholar?
1: Yeah. Um, You know, I think in a lot of ways, Praise and worship music is a really ecumenical thing. It's not confined just to non-denominational congregations. Um, So I've seen a lot of interest in that um, across denominational traditions, which I I think is really, I think the more we can sing together, the better our ecumenism is. Um, So that's one way um, I think... uh, I hesitate because it's become harder in recent years to kind of single out, this is what the evangelicals do, and this is what the mainlines do. And I I see that even in my teaching. I I think it's great. We have students that, you know, well, I started my life in this kind of a Christian tradition, and then I did this for two years while I was in college, and now I've landed in a third completely different place. So I think that there's just more of bringing the riches of our practices together. Yeah. Yeah.
0: That's beautiful. It made it reminded me of our, when we were in London for six years, we were at a, our local Anglican parish church. Um, both my wife and I don't have an Anglican background or Church of England background or Episcopal. But at the same time, the church in the first few years was, was kind of leaned more reformed, evangelical, kind of the John Stott yep. um, kind of Anglicanism. And then as New Vicar and others came in, they had much more um, yeah, vineyard influences and the Toronto Blessing and the kind yeah. of charismatic within the Anglican Church, the New Wine Church. And so even within a local congregation, there are aspects that this is clear, you know, at baptism, it's clearly Anglican. or When the bishop comes, it's it's clearly Anglican. But even that Anglican has so much diversity within, within that denomination that actually to say that when they were preaching in a more reform style was still Anglican. And when they, (laughs) you know, prayed at the end of the service, come Holy spirit. And people received prayer for healing. It still was Anglican. And I think that's one of the things that we've, we've begun to see is that, yeah, the evangelical movement, charismatic movement have helped um, bring some unity between some of these denominations that for years would never be at the same conference because they were at their denominational conference or would never seen, sing the same song because they had their denominational hymnal, are now drawing those those um, things together as they're yeah. at the Passion Conference together as college students, or yeah. they're bringing those songs back, or they're they're joining an outreach across the city to to bring um yeah god's kingdom and justice into into different areas of society so i i see that as a beautiful thing i know some of the traditionalists may may, may not
1: <laughs> no i do too i i think of friends of mine that um you know had a, had a baby during the pandemic and and when it came time they're they're also non-denominational but they were at a lutheran church and Normally, the practice would have been to baptize the infant, um, but the the pastor knew them and knew the infant dedication was was more the page that they were on theologically, and so that's what they did for this set of parents. And, you know, when we can make conversations and compromises like that, I think it's really beautiful.
0: Oh, that's great. Well... A couple more things. I, I'd love to hear like just some of your responses. Often, again, not only in the literature around evangelical worship, but uh, on blogs and podcasts, it's often categorized as three feel-good songs and a TED Talk. I mean, I've even seen that in literature described yes. that way. And And we've kind of been talking around this, but maybe— Maybe what's missing in that assessment, and particularly as you think about these seven churches you've you've visited, um, were were those seven churches more than three feel good songs <laughs> and a TED talk?
1: They absolutely were. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I think that that three. Good Songs and a TED Talk kind of comes out of something historically, which is um, a lot of liturgical scholars have looked back to uh, the Second Great Awakening and Charles Finney and revivalism and have said, you know, that's really what Finney was doing. Three warm-up songs, a hard-hitting sermon, an altar call, and off you go. Um, and just, uh, this, this might be a tangent, but it's, it's one of the things that I think we need to think more about in evangelical scholarship is that there are other historical influences that have shaped the trajectory of worship. So um, you need to look at other revivalists. You need to look at the Youth for Christ movement. You need to look at, you mentioned Pentecostal and Vineyard. All of those are are really um, doing more than three songs.
0: And and for those listening too, I think your your intro and first chapter of the evangelical versus liturgical kind of wrestles with some of that history and and presents some, yeah, maybe a fuller read of of what what is happening. So again, anybody listening, go pick up that book. <laughs>
1: Thank you. Um, but you know, I'm I'm thinking back to the churches that I went to, and how how careful they were about constructing worship that fit the context of their local body. So on, on one hand, I think maybe you could walk in and just say, oh, these are, are three arbitrarily chosen songs. If you stuck around with them a little longer um, and went to rehearsals and, and talked to folks that were on the team, there's a lot more going on. Um, so, So folks are thinking about... What what are the what are the fifty hymns that I want my congregation to be able to sing? Like, what's our core repertoire of those hymns, and how often am I going to program them? Um, what are what are what's our high school youth group singing and doing, and how does that affect what we the adults are doing in the service? Um, one place uh, the the Pacific Northwest congregation that really had some some antipathy to traditional evangelicalism. They chose songs that were written by songwriters in their geographical area as a way to help people sing and to draw them in that, that weren't kind of mass produced from the Christian contemporary music scene. Yeah, um, yeah there, there are so many different ways of thinking about it. Um, and uh, my respect for those that lead worship has always been high and it really skyrocketed <laughs> after after this almost two years of studying um, because there's so so many resources coming at you so quickly and so many decisions that you have to make.
0: Yeah, and, and sometimes in a very quick, <laughs> yeah. you get an email from the pastor of the sermon titled on on Saturday night, or a change that yeah. then you're trying to draw in what's yeah what's what's appropriate or what will fit thematically or or connect. and you have
1: to think about your musicians and what, what if we've got a volunteer group what can the volunteer group handle? Um, yeah. A lot of folks are doing this on a part time basis and they're juggling a full time job with their Sunday morning responsibilities. It's a lot.
0: So any worship leaders out there we have massive respect for oh. <laughs> massive yes. respect for the work you do as 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 you kind of kind of wrap up this 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 book on on evangelical worship as a as a mosaic you you talk some about the tensions or paradoxes within evangelical worship i'd love for our, our listeners to be able to kind of grapple with some of those what are some of maybe those tensions we've talked about some of the contributions some areas of similarities but where where do you see maybe some paradox or or some tension and how are evangelicals navigating that
1: yeah um you know, I, I think one one of those paradoxes that I saw across all of the churches was, if you think of it as a continuum, and on one end is, um, the, I'll use the word constancy, doing things the way that they've always been done, familiarity. Um, and the other end of it is doing something new every week, change. Um that's that's a huge tension for congregations to manage. How can we how can we say that we're the same church that we've always been, um, and yet uh, we're always shifting. We're always changing. Um, we think about scripture, and uh, we're we're part of the same tradition um, that we saw in the Old Testament, and yet with Christ, we're doing something completely new. So, I think that that's something that particularly churches that have been around for a long time have to give a lot of thought to. Um, another one is, uh, and the, the Northwest congregation is a good example of this. How do we say that we're part of this particular group and we identify with it? And at the same time, we keep our autonomy and say, you know, but, but my faith looks like this and it's not always the same as the churches. So yeah, that, 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 that change versus stability and that fitting in with the group versus um, standing out and being distinctive i think were, we're two of the recurring conversations that i saw mm.
0: yeah I, yeah I really again appreciate that not just the like the the construction or the 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 kind of unpacking but also trying to wrestle with how as a movement is is worship expressed in different ways and particularly again as you said sometimes that's historical a church in the 1980s is going to be very different i can think of my own home church in the in the 80s was a very different expression of worship even it was an assemblies of god pentecostal church to 2023 i mean they are two vastly different churches but in some ways still very similar, but there, we had an or- organist yeah. in like, not a, and not a B3, a C3, a church organist hey, in the Assemblies yeah. of God, a God church. And then, yeah, to see the yeah. the shape over, over 43 years um, is, is vast. And they, there's a need to negotiate that tension. I'd love to, yeah. Can, can I go back no, go for a second? Yeah,
1: I didn't mean to talk over you. I was just going to say, I think this is one of the things that makes studying um, non-denominational evangelicals particularly interesting because if you're in a tradition that at least has a prayer book or has denominational resources that are authorized by a committee, you've you've always got you know a, a home base to be looking back at. And if you're in a, a non-denominational church that doesn't use that kind of a written liturgy, and in some ways you're you're making it up every week. That's a different kind of stress and a different kind of pressure. So
0: you talk, maybe talk a little bit about that. Maybe like between a liturgical, maybe as a scholar, again, as a, as a leader, like, those high church or the more liturgical traditions that have those official books and ordo, uh, a denominational kind of, Hey, here's the book of common prayer. Here's, here's what we use. Discuss maybe the the difference in authority and flexibility of, of the kind of high church and, and then the more non-denominational free church. What, what does that look like?
1: Yeah. Um, And and maybe the first thing to say is just because a denomination has a resource book doesn't mean that the congregation (laughs) is using it. (laughs) Um, but it's there. It exists. It's
0: there. It's there. <laughs> On the pastor's shelf from seminary. Yeah.
1: <laughs> right. Um, and, and it was created by a group of people with a, a lot of historical, theological education and knowledge of that particular denominational tradition um, who sat down in a room together and, and said, I think these things are important. Um, I, I think we should sing this way I think these are the kinds of prayers that we should have um, that's 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 at least there in your tradition for you to draw upon as you see fit um, non-denominational churches certainly have I don't want to Exactly, say that they make it up as they go along each week. There's there's certainly a, a similar shape and outline to it, but so much of the decision making happens in the moment or in a in a week to week kind of um, thing, yeah. and a, a worship leader doesn't necessarily have a hymnal to draw on. Uh, they they have. A lot of new songs that are coming at them from all kinds of different directions, and Christian radio, and Spotify streams, and yeah, yeah. Yeah. and people in the congregation saying, "I love this song, let's sing it," or "I hate this song, why are we?"
0: <laughs> <laughs> Don't sing <laughs> it. Yeah. Sing it. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, so you you kind of become your your authoritative committee of 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 one or two. I am assuming that it's always in conversation with a senior pastor, but but that's harder and that's a different kind of stress to create every week. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, for those that are kind of just either getting started in in kind of scholarship around worship, whether that's an undergrad or pastors or worship leaders who have been serving in church, what what challenge or encouragement would you would you give our listeners?
1: Yeah. You know, we touched on it earlier, but I really want to uh, to hammer home how much your congregations appreciate you. Um, when I did the research for, for these seven churches, um, all people wanted to do was tell me, well, our pastor is fantastic. I love our worship leader. You should see what—I I don't know that congregations are always so good at telling the folks in leadership that outright, um, but when you get to eavesdrop as a third party, the, the love and appreciation for everything that you're doing is so strong. Um, so, so that's thing number one. Um the other, the other just piece of advice that I would give is one of the great things that I've gotten to do is, is to be an ethnographer, to go in and, and study different churches and groups by talking to people and kind of parsing out what's the theology. You can do that in your own church context. I think it's really important to spend time getting to know, um, you know, the, the, the middle school Youth group and the ladies that are praying um, for the missionaries every Wednesday night, and the high schoolers, and you know what's what's on the mind of your elementary school students. Yeah. Um, just just to know the different constituencies in your church and to be able to plan worship based around knowing their needs. Um, I, th- I think that there's nothing that takes the place of that kind of local knowledge.
0: Thank you for the, yeah, those beautiful words. And Melanie, thanks for your fantastic work, your scholarship. I know it's helping a whole new generation, of, too, of liturgical theologians, particularly those who are coming from those traditions, think more deeply about about their worship. So it's been a delight to, to get to meet you today. Thanks for joining us.
1: Oh, thanks so much. It's been really fun.